I think every strength that people have can be both a good and a bad. And I think that my strength that is kind of both good and bad is I can be incredibly stubborn and obstinate. And I think that in some cases that serves uh, the students that I'm working for. And in other cases in my life, it really does not serve me well. But... (laughs) Hello, you are listening to Destiny Benders, the podcast for international educators. This is the podcast where we hear from international education professionals who are changing lives and bending destinies in their work. Girish is traveling and unable to join me today, so I'm going to introduce you to our podcast guest this week. Her name is Joan Liu, and she is the founder of Second Chance. Welcome back to Destiny Benders. Our guest today is the incomparable Joan Liu, a college counselor that needs no introduction, but now the founder of Second Chance. Joan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome, Joan. We're excited to have you as a guest and to hear your story. So why don't we just dive on in and get started. Tell us about how you got your start in international education. What motivated you to to find your path in this career? Um, so I, after university was teaching at the Bronx high school of science, I was an English teacher and I has, I had thought to myself, I will be a teacher for the rest of my life. Like I was somebody who aspired to be a teacher, wanted to be a teacher, trained to be a teacher, and then thought I was going to begin and end my career in the same building actually. And then, um, five or six years in, I started looking at opportunities overseas because I thought, I wondered if there was a different way to define happiness or meaning. I think that in the United States, there's a huge narrative to do what makes you happy. And I I think there was a part of me that wondered what it would live, what it would look like to live abroad and to see what other cultures defined as happiness. And I think also I just was yearning for a little bit of adventure. So I applied to several jobs overseas and it took me, I think, two, two years to find a position that I thought would be a good fit for me. And that position was at the coach school in Turkey. And so I started doing full-time college counseling when I was at the coach school. When I was at Bronx Science, they'd actually asked me in my third year, as they did every English teacher, to be a college mentor. And they promised you a desk if you could do that. And I was a roving teacher like every other roving teacher at Bronx Science. And I just thought, wouldn't it be so nice to have a desk? So I have to say that the start was a little bit (laughs) uneventful, but I had always cared about college access and you know, my parents coming from an immigrant background, my my parents are both Taiwanese. There was, there was a lot of stress in my own household about going to college. So it was an area that I cared about, but I, my first and foremost love was English literature. And then I moved into college counseling. And then while I was at coach, I b- applied for a sabbatical from New York City and that sabbatical was denied. So I actually couldn't return to English teaching. I had to put my foot firmly into the college counseling arena, uh, even though I wasn't so comfortable with it um, because I had had a sabbatical denied. So, you know, when basically like life throws you something and you're like, oh, okay, all right, I'm just going to accept this and then see what happens. And so that's kind of, that's how I kind of got my start in in international education. So things we do for a desk, huh, Joan? (laughs) No, right? I mean, a lot of people we speak with, you know, say, oh, I, I went to school to study this and then I ended up doing this. But in your case, it sounds like you always wanted to be a teacher. So I'm assuming you went to school to be a teacher and all of that. So what like prompted you? Like, what was that motivation for you at a younger age to want to be a teacher? So I had a 
a phenomenal teacher in grade 10. His name was Mr. Roberts. He was a profound influence on my life. And that was the year that my, my mom was really sick and I almost lost her. And I would go to English, I would go to English class and I would really feel like we got to talk about things more than just the text. Like we got to talk about life and existential things. And I was really touched by how um, knowledgeable Mr. Nichols was and how inclusive he was to everybody. And I just wanted to be like him. So that's why I wanted to go into teaching. And you mentioned that you were interested in, so in the United States is do what makes you happy. And you were interested in finding out what makes people happy or how do people in other countries and other cultures think of what makes them happy. And international education, I'm assuming, makes you happy because once you made that decision to go abroad to work, you've continued to work abroad and work in international education. Do you see a difference working in? I'd be interested to find out, you know, your experience in the U.S. about do what makes you happy and now working in other countries. Is there is there a difference or do people around the world have that do what makes you happy mentality? particularly within international education, which is, I guess, where your framework is. Maybe I should back up a little bit because let me admit that I'm a very deep introvert. And I was somebody who grew up in Missouri and West Virginia. And I grew up in high schools that had huge like football culture or football teams. Um, And I just always felt on the margins. And I think part of it was that the definition of being happy was, well, at least sort of from the communities that I was in, kind of going to parties and being super extroverted and being really social. And and so I think that as I got into college, that also continued because I was at a school where there was a bit of a heavy frat culture. And I just wondered if there were other ways in which to build a good life, you know, other than that sort of, I know that this, now that I think about it and I'm older, like this sounds hugely ridiculous to me to think that I was sort of, had internalized this narrative. But I think that when you're young and you think about, you know, when you look around your peers and you kind of look at what kind of makes them happy, I just kind of thought, I just don't know about this. And I think I found going overseas that maybe my definition of a good life is a meaningful life. Maybe it's not necessarily a happy life, but it's a meaningful life. And I think that that was clarified for me as I went overseas. And I think that that's because when you go overseas, all of your defaults shift. So for example, when I was in the United States, I saw a car accident. I was in New York City and there were two people who stayed behind, me and another teacher to serve as witnesses. So in the United States, you opt in to sort of being a bystander and being um, what we would call a good Samaritan. But in other countries, that's actually not the case. So When I was in Turkey, I saw something happen on the street and actually people were called out when they tried to leave. And it was my first time that I realized that the default was actually, (laughs) you don't opt in to stay, right? The default is to stay and you opt out to leave. And that was a huge shift for me. So seeing a couple of things like that, and I think we've all kind of had that experience overseas where you just realize that maybe the default that you've been adhering to isn't necessarily the right way to live a great life. And so I think that as I went overseas, I found that there were different narratives in terms of what I guess I would call quote unquote makes people happy, whether that was looking for meaningful work or purposeful work. And I guess, so for me, those two two things are tied together. Um, Being really happy and having a really purposeful or meaningful life, however you kind of define that is, that is what is really important to me. 
Yeah, and clearly, John, over the years that I've seen you work and the work that you do, just amazing work. Like I said, you don't need an introduction, uh, especially folks within our side of the international education space. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who listen to the podcast that are not in the college counseling or recruitment world. They might might not know you or your work yet. So tell us a little bit more about that. I know you've been such a, a staunch believer and a champion for opportunity and you know and those kinds of things and i know what you're doing with second chance we want to hear more about that but just walk us through that whole journey of being a college counselor obviously impacting so many kids so hopefully helping them find some meaningful and purpose in life um, and then now leading to your founding of second chance um so for the listeners out there i'm sure uh, that you might have had a moment where you would say was quite transformative for your career And so for me, one of those moments was when I was at the coach school in Turkey, and we had a good number of students who needed financial aid. And it's really interesting seeing U.S. higher education from a third-party standpoint. I had never lived outside of the United States. I grew up in, I was born in West Virginia. I grew up in uh, West Virginia and Ohio and Missouri. And I had not lived overseas for a significant amount of time. I mean, occasionally my parents would take us to Taiwan, but that was it. And those were really condensed adventures, I would say. Like it'd be like one or two days. It wouldn't be like for months at a time. So I'm in the coach school office and there was a girl who I had followed her journey. Um, Larry Turns, who is was and continues to be the director of college counseling at that, that office, had a student come in and she was crying. And she was crying because she'd just gotten a full scholarship to a liberal arts college in the Northeast in the United States. And I saw the whole thing. I saw her come in. I saw her family come in. I saw the other college counselors come and gather around her. And I was kind of to the side. I was a new counselor and I saw the whole thing. I saw what it meant to the family. I understood then from a profound point of view, what my father must've felt when he got a full scholarship to Canada. And I could literally see in that moment, kind of like how the trajectory of her family was going to change her parents. I actually knew because they were teachers in the school. And, um, Wow. Larry took me aside afterwards and he said, you know, here's the thing. College counseling, the greatest difference that you can make is for a kid who needs access and who needs full financial aid. Like that is where you can be a destiny bender. And so I really felt that that was sort of a really good training ground. Like I learned about financial aid when I was in um, coach. Then I went to the United States and worked at a very wealthy school in New Jersey. And I didn't think that that was a great fit for me. But, you know, I think it's really good also to have underneath your sort of repertoire, your kind of being able to help everybody, you know, and and really knowing the whole spectrum. Because I think if you don't know the whole spectrum, you can get very myopic. And so then I went back to Turkey and I was building an office and there were lots of financial aid kids in that particular graduating class. And it was really important to the school. The school is a new school. It was trying to prove that Um, It had outstanding students. It could have an outstanding record. And I could see how much then we had six students in that class who needed full financial aid. So then I got to sharpen my skills a little bit. Um, All six went. It it was a real uh, accomplishment for the whole community. And they were all six girls. And one of them was an Armenian girl who um, was the only Armenian in the whole school. And she was from a very modest background. And so there there were just some, some really interesting students who were there. Then I went to England and I helped um, with the launch of the Sutton Trust Program. I did some sort of informal consulting there and was a mentor to some of the first students in their first cohort. 
Um, and then, of course, I went to UWC and I got a chance to work with more with financial aid. So I, it's kind of an area that I'm very, very interested in. I, I find that there are many niches of college counseling. You know, there's like working with athletes. There's like working with future engineers. There's working with lawyers. There's working with, um, you know, liberal arts kids, engineer like uh, computer science kids. And I, I just find that working with kids who need full financial aid, it's just such a joy. I just feel like it's a very, it's a very difficult type of counseling because it's very high stakes. There's a lot on the line. It, it takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill. And I feel like it's almost a different skill set from the other types of college counseling niches that are out there. I've been kind of a nerd about it. Like I just, I always ask questions about financial aid. I'm always going to conference sessions on access. Um, I'm always going to conference sessions on new markets where there can be financial aid and scholarships. Like I'm only, I'm only ever just trying to learn about this space. So, I mean, I guess everybody has their favorite area that they want to kind of delve into. And this is just an area that I find very fascinating. To me, it's like kind of like a both an art and a science, being able to help a kid get to play all the roles as a college counselor. You get to be a coach, a mentor, a knowledge worker. Uh, you get to be a global mobility facilitator. You know, you also get to navigate cultural differences with the parents. And, and I just find it to be just a conglomeration of roles when you're working with a, a high need student from a modest background. So, you know, I'm an international student myself, right? I came to the U.S. to study a long, long time ago, and financial aid makes a huge difference. Back then, there weren't very many financial aid opportunities for international students, but I'm glad to see there's more now. But at the same time, the cost of education has gone up 10x uh, since I was in college, maybe even more. And so it's becoming harder and harder for students to afford college in the U.S. So we see all these universities who want to provide an opportunity for students to bring them onto campus. And it, there's no question that they're going to offer an amazing opportunity. But when it comes to affordability... Please comment on that. How, what can universities do more? I know you're doing something with Second Chance, and we want you to talk about that. But all the universities listening out there, how do we reconcile this? There's this amazing opportunity, but the cost always is a barrier. I think that this is, I think every university is at a different point in their evolution. And I guess I would say to, 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 institution out, to institutions out there who, who are able to offer a full scholarship to their domestic students. I think it is really important to offer the same to an international student. So I think parity is important. Um, and I think asking the question, if you don't have full financial aid for an international student, why? Why is that the case? If you are going to say that you are about access and inclusion, and you're going to talk about this globally, then that needs to translate into the investment that you are putting into both domestic and international students. I guess I would also say, secondly, that some of this depends on leadership and how they view um, students who face tremendous barriers in terms of finances. When colleges view students as a charity versus as an investment, this is where I think there are some problematic things that have, have materialized. So for example, I was contacted by a few schools last week and you know these schools have taken a Ukrainian, an Afghani student, a student who has been displaced, and now there is the very real challenge of, oh my goodness, what do we do about university? And I think that for some schools, it is a matter of sort of optics and virtue signaling. Let me just be clear. You know, I think it looks good. And then I think for other schools, they have gone past that optical point of view. They've become a post-optical type of school. I'm making some words up here, forgive me. And, and they've really decided that this is really an investment that you've got to invest both in your domestic and your international students. 
And that really being inclusive means that you've got to remove barriers and that it is not people's fault if they are coming from a modest background. So I, I think that there are some things to, to think about. I, I also think that when building a global community, there are a lot of schools that also depend heavily on China. I was at a school, I won't name it, a couple of years ago, and they said, oh, we've got such a global community. We've got 10% international. But what they really meant was that they had 9.5% Chinese, and they are relying on full-pay Chinese students to subsidize a lot of the programming that they have. So I would also say to really think hard about how you define um, a global campus and a diverse campus and diversity in terms of socioeconomic status, diversity in terms of the many different regions of the world that there are, and also in terms of class. There are a couple of countries where it's easy to get, quote unquote, a full pay student, but there are also full need students in those countries as well. So I know I'm kind of talking a little bit opaquely, but I think that people in our industry and your listeners will understand kind of what I'm trying to share. But I overall would really ask universities to try very hard to be at parity between domestic and international students and try very hard to shift your institution in terms of its mindset to really seeing this as an incredible investment of your of your time and also in your mission. I think that is a really good segue for you to tell us a little bit more about now this next stage in your career and Second Chance and what you are doing and the mission of Second Chance. So Second Chance emerged out of um, a crisis that happened in 2018. And um, many people in our industry are familiar with this case, but for those of you who are listening who have not heard of this. In 2018, the University of Texas at Tyler had to revoke many scholarships from um, many students because they had had a budgetary error. So they ended up um, revoking scholarships from 60 students and all 60 students were in Nepal. And this all happened at a time in the year where the admission season was over. And Jessica, you will remember that we had a, uh, the, the first time I met you, I cried in front of your, your table at an IC3 fair because I was so distraught over the situation. Um, but basically, we tried to find all of these 60 students, those of us who were in the college counseling community. There were eight women who came together. and We kind of formed an ad hoc team, and we named ourselves the Nepal Justice League. And we tried to galvanize a movement around these students, amplify their voices. And then we tried to do the very hard work, the very hard, unprecedented work of trying to find full scholarships for 60 students after April 1st, after the admission season was over. And we did end up finding 60 students and we had to verify them with UT Tyler because we had to keep making phone calls because nobody could give us a list because of data privacy. And um, we ended up seating 56 and 54 went. Two did not get their visas. And so we learned a lot that year about, let's call it the post-April 1st space. Well, then the following year, eight kids came to me because we'd been in the press and they didn't have a crisis. They just didn't have a seat. So they didn't have a viable financial aid seat. And I thought, well, wow, <laughs> eight's easier than 60. So I seated them just as like an unofficial, informal, pro bono type of thing. And then the following year, I thought, well, gosh, what if we could have a two-sided market for low-income kids, like really high achieving low-income kids? We have a two-sided market for other things that we have in our lives. Like you can get a last minute train ticket. You can get a last minute Airbnb. You can get a last minute hotel. Um, you can get a last minute registration to a conference. Like why can't you get a last minute seat to a university? So we reached out to folks that year and that was the year that COVID happened. So a lot of people pulled back on their budgets and we reached out to a lot of 
some competitive college clubs in uh, the Southeast area region. I had, I was formerly the inclusion and access chair for international ACAC and had had a lot of contact with education USA offices. So reached out to them and said, Hey, who doesn't have a home? Like who went through this process and doesn't have a viable financial aid offer? It doesn't have a home. And so we ended up with 22 students that year and I built a team and we seeded them all. And so then I thought, okay, now we have something that's really interesting here. And so we call the initiative Second Chance because we feel that it's a, a second shot at getting a great uh, overseas education. The students that we work with have already demonstrated that they're interested in uh, higher ed because they all applied to the U.S. As competitive as the United States is with financial aid, it's no surprise that you have many talented students who still have um, no viable financial aid offer by April 1st. And then what we do is we give them pro bono application support, mentorship. We introduce them to new schools. We've talked to um, maybe 20 schools who have taken our students after April 1st, and we work across countries. So one of the things I had insisted when we worked with the, the Nepali students in 2018 was that, um, that we have a global search. So we, we apply the principle here, and we look across different countries for opportunities for students. And Last year, this past summer, we hit the 100 mark. So now we have, if we include the Nepali students, we've now seated 101 students with full, and full scholarships not meaning full tuition. Full scholarships meaning full tuition, room, and board. This is a really incredible team of women. Um, the people on my team are Shilpa Gupta from UWC ISAC and Mala Swaminathan, who is now at UWC SEA, Erin Slocum from the Tanglin School. Um, Kavitha Chandran, who was formerly at UWC in China, and we work at a breakneck speed. And the kids that we look for also have to meet certain criteria. And one of the things that we do look for is a, a certain type of swiftness, because basically we're trying to do a multi-country application process in four weeks. So come to us in April, get seated by May, get your visa in June, and go off to college in August. That's kind of our timeline. And, and so we work really fast. It, it, <laughs> I mean, we did the same thing in 2018 with all the Nepali students. And, and so it's just the same model. It's just without a crisis. <laughs> so although I would say that to a student, I mean, I'm not trying to undercut students here. I would say that to a student who has tried to apply to schools in the United States and who doesn't have, who, who they don't have a home by April 1st, like that is a crisis to them. Like they really do feel like um, there is no hope. Uh, that is what Second Chance is about. It's it's Incredible. about helping students after April 1st, um, and it's free to students. The team that I have, we are all volunteers, and we think it's a really we think it's a really compelling project. And what I'm trying to do this year is I'm trying to move this from a project volunteer initiative to a nonprofit legal entity, and so that is why I moved to Turkey. I started my career here. It's lower cost of living here. And I'm living really lean this year because I want very much to get this off the ground. And so this has become both a personal and professional thing for me, which it always has been, quite frankly. And, you know, when we talk about destiny benders, I mean, you really are a destiny bender. I've watched you do some amazing work. So what can our listeners do to support Second Chance? I mean, what, what, where is that, the 501c3 or a nonprofit that you're set up? So that's one question. And then dovetailing that into 
what is some advice you have from for counselors out there, whether they are brand new to the profession or they've been doing it for 20 years? I'm sure there's some advice that you can give them. Uh, I'd love for you to share those. So maybe I'll start with the counseling advice, um, because I know that we are now in the final last stretch before some of the U.S. deadlines um, of the season. And I would just say that if you're a first time counselor or if you're a veteran counselor, to me, this is a really honorable profession. It's a profession that really is working with the future and it gives us an opportunity to help shape the future. And I would also say that to me, the people in this industry are incredible people. I think that our profession is so special and that we, so many of us are friends with each other, you know, and many of us are like second family to each other, even though we live all around the globe. And so I think that the kind of friendships that you can develop in this industry and the kind of opportunities that you have to work with youth around the world are incredible opportunities. And to me, this profession is a calling. It's not, it's never really been a job to me. I think that, and I also think that it, quite frankly, if you've chosen education, there's something in you that has led you to this because you do not choose education for the money, right? None of us have chosen this <laughs> for the money. So there is some aspect of this that is really appealing to us because of the purpose of this, the larger mission of this. So I would say um, a hold to that. And if you're, particularly if you're young, I would say I was very lucky to have really strong mentors. I've also had my share of really not strong mentors. I think to myself, I was very lucky to have started out with really strong mentors. If you can identify somebody either in your school or outside of your school who can help you, especially with some of the things that aren't, how do I say this, official, but they're important. For example, I think an unofficial thing that we all have to get good at as college counselors is speaking in public. But it's not like we go to public speaking classes. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of an unofficial thing. Or so, for example, increasingly, some understanding of being able to look at some of the ed tech stuff out there and choosing what should be your platform for your school, like what should be your CRM, like what should be your communication tool. So I kind of feel like these are some unofficial skills. Wendy Beckmeyer, who is the VP of enrollment, she just ran an incredible series called Pay It Forward. And she talked about some unofficial skills on the um, VP enrollment side. And she mentioned two that were really interesting to me, which was anticipation and discernment. Anticipate what needs to come, try to have a plan for that and be ready when it comes. And then discernment, kind of know when to step in and when to hold back, which I think, you know, who teaches you how to do that? But I, th I find these to be really interesting skills. So I feel like this profession, there's an opportunity to really learn some incredible skills. And then in regards to your first question, in regards to how to help, well, there are two asks I would have of, of your audience members. One would be, if there's anybody out there who knows anything about the nonprofit world, I would love to have a conversation with you because it, you know, trying to figure out the right legal structure for this. And there are several different types of legal structures out there for initiatives that have a nonprofit type of focus, I would guess I would say. Uh, I'm a bit lost. I'll, I'll admit this. Um, the second thing I would say is consider donating to our fund. We are running a fundraiser right now, and maybe I can ask you to drop those in your show notes. And I will ask um, your audience to help us get this off the ground. You know, help if you've seen some of the work that we've done, or if you've been a beneficiary of some of the work that we've done, or you've had a touch point with us and you believe in this, I would say, even if you invest a tiny bit amount, we would be so grateful to your help. You would really be helping to change somebody's trajectory. And I think that that's the work that you've seen us do 
is that we have tried to change the trajectory of somebody's life, both in terms of higher education and also global mobility and social and economic opportunities. So please be a part of the effort to help this get off of the ground. I think it would be really lovely if this industry had had this option, you know, in regards to a two-sided market. And that would be my ask. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely be able to provide that information in the show notes and in our post promoting the podcast. And it also, I think, you know, as you said, changing someone's trajectory. Well, that's what we talk about on Destiny Benders. Destiny Benders are people who change trajectories. And so now in a little way, all of our podcast listeners can be Destiny Benders. They already are in the work that they do in international education. But, you know, by helping Second Chance, also contributing to lots of destiny bending and really helping those students, as you said, you know, the 101 that you've worked with already so far, how their lives have changed. I mean, beyond anything that we will ever know because of that, they hopefully will bend someone's destiny who will then bend someone. And it just always creates this wider network and and is, is paid forward in so many ways, this ripple effect. We'll definitely put that information there. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Joan. Um, It's been fantastic talking to you. We're going to end the podcast with our quick fire questions, which I don't know if you've listened to the podcast in the past, but this is something that we always do. <laughs> I would throw this out there. Um, we end our podcast with a, a series of questions that Girish and I ask a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more about you. So, okay. so I'm going to shoot, I'm going to go first. You have traveled around the world. You've worked with many different students. Can you give us books that you've read or, and this is professional uh, as well as personal, that have really touched you and that have helped you in your work, something that someone might be able to pick up? And it can be fiction or nonfiction that, that you read and you thought, okay, this is as a counselor, as somebody who works with students, this is something that's really helped me in, in my work. Okay, I have two. One is the four-hour work week. There's a chapter in the four-hour work week where they talk about geo-arbitraging. And I thought to myself, okay, how do I get this off the, off the ground? Let me geo-arbitrage and move to Turkey. Okay, I will leave it to your listeners to look up what geo-arbitraging is. Okay. It's by Tim Ferriss. The second one, by the way, guys, I don't work four hours a week. Nobody no. does it. <laughs> you don't? I think you work four hours every hour, Joan. <laughs> well, we, we all work four hours every hour. Um and then the other book, I don't know if you guys have read this. It's called The Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman. And it's the story mm. of a Hmong child who has epilepsy mm. and a collision of cultures between a Hmong family and a, a U.S. Western hospital as oh. they try to get treatment for their child. And Anne Fadiman does such a great job of showing both sides. And I think she especially does such a great job as um, showing both sides when she herself is American. Oh, you know, I was so surprised by, and so impressed with her empathy of just how she could capture the, the cultural differences and what happens when they collide. So here's an example. All right. The doctors in the hospital are saying, okay, take this every three hours. And this family is like, what's an hour? Because in Hmong culture, maybe that's not like a concept. I mean, we all break up time differently, right? Right. So there's a point in which she talks about how the culture breaks up time in terms of the beginning of the day when the sun rises, the end of the day when the sun sets, and the middle of the day when the sun is at its highest point in the sky. So when do I take my medication? How do I get my child well? Right? So, so she talks about all these kinds of collisions. And I think that that book is really good for somebody who's trying very hard to understand what is happening in their cultural context. 
why am I having trouble with, you know, name it X, Y, or Z. And maybe you're working with a particular population um, or a particular demographic that you don't have experience with. And I think it's a really good book to see things from another point of view. I think it really helps get out of a Western point of view, but it, it also comes from a Western point of view. So I think it stretches you. Um, does yeah. that make sense? I don't think yeah. I don't know. Yes. That no, 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 absolutely. absolutely does. Absolutely does. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. No, that was great. So my question to you, Joan, is, you know, you do all this work all the time with all these students. What is some experience that you think back to all the time when you're feeling down, when you're like maybe not motivated? What is that one experience that you remember and go, this is why I do what I do? I don't know if there's an experience I feel like I've, I'm a very results driven person. And so I really like to see, and I'm also a very all or nothing person. So I, for me, it's really important that every student that we work with have a seat at the end and get access to higher ed. For me, that's, that's a driving force. I guess I also tend to be, um, when I feel down or when I feel, feel discouraged, I think that that's kind of really at the heart of your question. I, I had a very good friend say to me once, you know, in the middle of that whole 2018 thing, which, which by the way, I spent a lot of time crying, a lot of time crying. I'm sure a lot of people on my team did. It was just very hard, you know, to do like your job at your school and then the juxtaposition in between working with, for example, a very wealthy population and then a population that has no means whatsoever. And that juxtaposition every day, like kind of code switching back and forth. And I had a friend say to me when I was like really discouraged, you know, just keep going, like just keep going. So he kind of said to me, you know, you don't have to keep going well. You just need to keep at it so you can be on the track and run like a total mess, but you just need to keep running. And I think that um, I, I think every strength that people have can be both a good and a bad. And I think that my strength that is kind of both good and bad is I can be incredibly stubborn and obstinate. And I think that in some cases that serves uh, the students that I'm working for. And in other cases in my life, it really does not serve me well. But <laughs> but I think it's all a matter of context, right? Like I think whatever you have, like in terms of your skill set is in one context, a total blessing. And in another context, a total disaster. And I think that for the t- types of things that I have worked on, which have been more crisis situations, I will say, or more mm-hmm. unprecedented situations, I don't know where there hasn't been like a roadmap before, I, I think that the being a little bit obstinate is helpful because I think it helps you push through something that might seem like a barrier, mm-hmm. you know? So you see a barrier, but if you're an obstinate person, you're just like, that just makes me want to try harder. Uh, and then, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that sort of thing. Well, we wish you the best and we hope that you keep running and be as stubborn as you are and obstinate as you are, because I think you're moving mountains, really. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I know a lot of our listeners would want to be a part of the Second Chance Initiative that you've uh, undertaken. So thanks, Joan. Keep up the great work. Thank you both thank for you. having me on this podcast.